Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Jesus, we magnify you, Jesus. We give you glory and honor and praise. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody feel that way tonight? Falling in love with Jesus is the best thing that you've ever done. Amen. If it's not the best thing you've ever done, you haven't done it. Because once you've fallen in love with Jesus, it is the best thing you've ever done. Amen. We are looking at Revelation chapter 5 tonight. This is lesson 12 of our study of the book of Revelation. If you wouldn't mind praying with me, and then I'm going to let you be seated. Jesus, we thank you for another opportunity in your house to study your word, to learn from your word. God, I ask that you would allow me to teach in a way that you can anoint. God, help me to say everything you'd have me to say, nothing more, nothing less. Let the seed of your word fall on good ground tonight, Jesus. Help us to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We are in, as I said, lesson 12 of the book of Revelation. From the very beginning of time all the way back in the garden back when Adam and Eve were created we have a fundamental flaw if you will in humanity because of what Adam and Eve did because of their sin in the garden Our world has been, and you can see the signs of it everywhere, it has been cursed ever since. Genesis tells us that sin at one point got so bad in our world that God had to destroy the earth with a flood in order to deal with that sin. You look at Noah, from Noah until now is the history of our world. Chaos and sin have reigned. It's true, though, that humanity has progressed quite a bit in the course of time. Things have gotten uh, better in some ways. Technologically speaking, The world has never been so advanced. At the push of a button, you can talk to somebody who is on a complete other side of the world. Um, If you've got the money 
you can and you can find a pilot. You can, hypothetically speaking, fly a plane to anywhere in the world and be there in a day. Um, technologically speaking, we've advanced. There is more power, they say, in the computer that is in your phone than the computer that powered the spaceship that went to the moon. We've advanced a lot. Um, we've seen in the last 100, maybe you could say 200 years, the rise of capitalism. And with the rise of capitalism, you've seen poverty levels wherever capitalism is allowed. Uh, we've seen poverty decrease. That's a good thing. We've progressed. Wherever socialism uh, takes hold of a country, we see a regression, though, of that. So in many ways, though, as I'm trying to point out, the world has gotten better, or so it would seem. It has progressed. But in other ways, the world is getting worse and worse every day. If you had been alive in the early 1900s, you may have gotten caught up in the... uh idea, as pleasant as it was, that humanity was getting ready to reach a point that it had never reached. The end of wars, the end of poverty, the end of all of that kind of stuff. They were, they were hoping for it. They thought they could see it. And then an assassin's bullet all of a sudden sparked the greatest war the world's ever seen. World War One, And Chaos reigns in the earth. And then a little bit after that, evil comes up again and we've got World War II. And since then, we've had several wars. We've had the Korean War. We've had the Vietnam War. Um, we've had Desert Storm. And that's just talking about America and America's wars. Our world has been in chaos. And then we see the rise of terrorism and a unique kind of terrorism. A, a terrorist could strap a bomb. The world's never seen anything like this outside of maybe the kamikaze pilots uh, that the Japanese Air Force um, had. A man could strap a bomb to himself and then go into a public place and set that bomb off, causing great damage and loss of life. That's happening in our world today. And experts say that that's not going anywhere. That's just going to be our world from now on. And then you look at a just pure moralistic level in our world, and our world is getting worse and worse. We're justifying things. Things are becoming mainstream that used to, it's always been, sin has always been practiced but sin hasn't always been mainstream, been the thing that everybody promotes and everybody goes after, and yet we see all of this happening right now. In fact, if you read the news and study the news, the experts tell you that the world is at a tipping point right now, and that at any moment a spark could set off another great war, except this time 
It could be the war that ends all wars in the sense that it annihilates humanity. That's the fear that we have in our world. We've got nuclear weapons all over the place. The world is ripe for something to happen. And so the question has to come up. Is there anybody that can take all of the wrong, all of the sin, all of the fear, the war, the things that are going wrong in our world and make it right? Is there anybody that has the moral right and the moral authority to do it? Because there's something to that, right? Somebody has to have not just, not just the want to, they have to have the ability to accomplish it. But then they need to have the moral authority to accomplish it. Does anyone like that? Exist? Is there anyone who has the moral authority to judge the sin that is in the world, to reverse the curse that we see in our world? What we find in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation is an answer to that question. That question of, is there anybody who can um, take everything wrong and make it right? Reverse what went wrong in our world. John here in chapter 5 is in the middle of his vision of heaven and it's the same vision that he's had in chapter 4 that we discussed last week. What did he see last week? He walks in, he gets, he gets propelled, if you will, thrusted into the throne room of heaven. And what does he see while he's there? He sees one sitting on a throne and then he sees around the throne 24 elders, he calls them, sitting on 24 thrones. They've all got crowns on their head. And then he sees around the great throne, he sees four, what he calls, or what the translators call beasts, but are actually living ones or angels flying around the throne and they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And then all of a sudden, as the angels cry, holy, you remember the scene that we talked about last week, the, the, the worship that got a hold of the 24 elders as they stepped off of their throne and they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. What a scene. What a scene to experience. And all of that, that great and wondrous scene leads us to this chapter and the rest of the vision that John sees of heaven. Verse number 1 of chapter 5, John said, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. So what does he see? He sees a scroll. It wouldn't be a book like we have today, but it's a scroll and the scroll has got words on the inside and on the outside. It's been sealed seven times, uh, seven different seals. Keep it safe. This is a contract, if you will, or a title deed. To the Romans, it would be considered more of a contract. Um, they were used all over the Middle East, 
On the inside of it, you would have the full details of the contract. On the outside, uh, after it's been rolled up on the outside, you'd have a summary of what's on the inside, and then you would seal it seven times, and they would have all kinds of contracts um, made up this way. The Hebrew, though, uh, the Hebrew people, they used the same type of system, except they used it as a title deed. So they would write up the deed to their property on the inside, on the outside would have a summary of the property of the deed of what it was, and then they would seal it with these seals. So what John is seeing, he's seeing the one on the throne has a scroll or this title deed, if you will, sitting next to him. What is the title deed? what he's seeing is it's not necessarily, it is ownership of the earth. It's a title deed to the earth is what it is, but it is uh, full of what's going to happen and what must be accomplished in the earth and on the earth. So essentially what this is, is it's a, it's a title deed and whoever it is that can open this up is going to set the will going forward. It's going to set the ball rolling, if you will, to the new earth. This is what John sees. Then let's look at verse 2 through 4. He said, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? So he sees the uh, scroll that's sitting there, all of a sudden, this strong angel, which implies an angel that is protecting the seal, making sure nobody even attempts to open this seal but its rightful owner. He stands up and he issues a call. Call throughout the earth. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book neither to look therein, and I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither look therein. So the angel cries out, who is worthy to open this book and to claim the title deed to the earth and to the new earth? We can call this, if you will, the cosmic search. The angel is searching through the entirety of the universe. He looks everywhere. The call, it's a loud voice. The call goes forth to every corner of the universe. Everywhere that that great voice booms. And there is no one that is able to open the book. Now, what's interesting is the angel is looking for someone worthy, not someone willing. Because if he was looking for someone willing, no doubt, the world has been full of willing tyrants and willing rulers. You could have, if Alexander had been anywhere, and he's in a grave somewhere, so the angel's call out would have reached him. Alexander, if the only qualification was willingness, what I've studied of Alexander the Great tells me that 
he would have probably accepted the task. Title deed of the earth, conquered half the known world by the age of 25. I bet you Alexander stands up and says, I'll take that. But it's not willingness. It's worthiness. The angel calls out, is there anyone worthy? As he calls out, is there anyone worthy? If you had been there, it would have been one of the most awkward, maybe even traumatizing silences that you have ever been a part of. Silence gripped the entire throne room. The angels that were crying holy stopped crying holy. Everybody focused on the book and the angel who says, is there anyone worthy to open the book? Abraham didn't stand up and walk forward. Nor did Jacob. Not Enoch or Elijah. Not David or Solomon. Not Peter, James, John, or Paul. None of the great men. Samuel couldn't do it. Elisha couldn't do it. John the Baptist couldn't step forward. None of the righteous believers in any age stepped forward. No one. It was awkward silence. You look at the angels and Gabriel stood there in silence, didn't move. Michael, the warrior, stood there in silence, didn't move. The angel calls out, is there anyone who is worthy to open up the book? And no one moves. No alien, no animal, no one moved. Silence in the throne room. Search the entire universe and no one steps forward. Silence then would have been deafening. And that's when we read that John, in that moment, is overcome with emotion. Emotion is crashing down on him and he begins to weep. He begins to weep. It's not tears of joy. And in fact, scholars would tell you, theologians, that this is the only time tears have entered heaven. This was grief. This was agony that got a hold of John. W.A. Criswell sums up his tears this way. Very powerful. He says, John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the garden as they bowed over the first grave, as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent, stilled form of their son Abel. Those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried unto heaven. They are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as they experience in trials and sufferings of life, heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it. 
that usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan devil. And I wept audibly for the failure to find a redeemer meant that this earth in its curse is consigned forever to death. It meant that death, sin, damnation, and hell should reign forever and ever, and that the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. So you wonder, why is John crying? Because John understands what he is looking at. He's looking at the key to set everything right. The key to turn all the grief. What is John living through? John is on an isle of Patmos, suffering persecution for the gospel. He's looking at churches that he plants and people that he loves, and they're suffering for the gospel. Why is John crying? He's trying, he's crying because all of a sudden he realizes that all the sweat and blood and tears and toil of the churches and the preachers is for nothing, it seems. And not only that, but it's going to continue. All the sin and the hurt and the turmoil is going to go on unending. That's why John sat there and wept. Just the grief that got a hold of John. The realization that there was no one worthy to take back the earth. There was no one worthy to do the right thing, to take all that's wrong and make it right. No redeemer. And that's when one of the elders grabs a hold of John And let's John know, John, your grief is a little bit premature. Your, your, your agony, I feel the heart of your agony, but you're doing a little too early. You reacted a little too quickly. Look up. Because in verse five, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. That elder tells him, stop crying, get up, dry those tears. Look, the lion is here. The conqueror is here. See, John, in the middle of all of the stuff that was going on, The thundering and the lightning we remember from chapter 4. All of that is still going on and the 24 elders and the casting of the crowns. He missed something in his vision that was right there. The lion of the tribe of Judah waiting to take the title deed. Interesting. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's called. The root of David. The lion, this... Title comes from Genesis 49, 8 through 10. It's Jacob's blessing to his son Judah. Says this, I'll read it very quickly. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. Thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion who shall rise him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. What is this prophecy? Out of the tribe of Judah would rise a lion-like leader who would conquer and who would liberate. This is why the Jews missed Jesus when he first came. Because they were expecting this Messiah the conquering lion from the tribe of Judah. And he was going to come and he's going to set everything right. And he's going to take everything wrong and he's going to make it right. And Jesus is a lion, but we find that Jesus does things on his own timetable. And before he could be the lion, he has to be a lamb. So he calls him this elder, the lion of the tribe of Judah, but then he also calls him the root of David. And I love this. How can you miss this? It is so good and so obvious in commentators and theologians that are, that are convinced that God is separate in three persons. They twist themselves into a pretzel to try to explain away things like this. He said, the elder said, that Jesus, this lion of the tribe of Judah, was the root of David. What's the root? It's the source. He's the creator of David. He's the reason that David has a throne. It's Jesus that is this. So how can he be the root, but also the offspring? Because he came from the tribe of Judah. He's the branch. He's the root, but he's also the branch. And they say, well, that can't possibly be. Well, yes, it can, because Jesus is a lion, but he's also a lamb. And my Bible says that he is. He's also alpha, but he's also omega. He's first, but he's also last. He is, he is, he who is, who was, and is forevermore. The one who was and became dead and is now alive forevermore. Isaiah said that he is the eternal wonder. You can't explain him, his majesty, his glory. We ought to be praising Jesus for who he is. Who is he? He's the source of all things, but also he's the firstborn of creation. Who is he? He's the creator of everything. He's the lion, conquering lion from the tribe of Judah. But he's also the lamb that was slain from the very beginning. He's the lamb that is going to step forward into the throne room. All of the fullness, Paul said, is in Jesus. Amen. So with renewed hope, if you're in the throne room and you see this playing out, John, who is just been devastated, is now pulling himself together. He's drying the tears. And through a heart renewed with hope, tear-stained eyes, John looks up to find the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what does the Bible say he found when he looked for the lion? Verse number six. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. In that verse there is a little lamb. As it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. I love this. He looks for the lion. 
The elder said that it's the lion from the tribe of Judah. But when he gets his eyes focused and he looks, all he sees is the lamb. He's the lion and he's the lamb. But he had to be the lamb first. He had to be the suffering servant first. So he looked for the lion but found a lamb and he didn't just find any lamb. But if you look at this lamb, the Bible says that he was a slain lamb. And that word is slain or slaughtered. It's freshly slain or freshly slaughtered. What does that mean? Still bearing the evidence of being slain or slaughtered. So what does he see? He sees stepping forward. Remember, nobody would step forward. All the righteous men of all of the ages couldn't do anything. When the angel asked, is there anyone worthy? But who begins to step forward? It's that slaughtered, freshly slaughtered lamb walking forward towards the throne, towards that book that no one else was worthy to open. Amen. Jesus, you know, one one writer said that the only man-made thing that is going to be in heaven are the scars that Jesus wears on his hands and on his feet and on his body. We've got a lamb here that has been freshly slain. And he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But he overcame. What does that freshly slain lamb tell us? If you look closely at that freshly slain lamb, what you would think that you would see, Brother Chad, as you're looking at a freshly slaughtered lamb is a dead lamb. Freshly slain, freshly slaughtered. He should be laying down. He should be dead. There should be blood gushing out of him, all of that. But instead, what does he find? A standing slain lamb. A freshly slaughtered standing lamb. Because though he was slain, though he went to Calvary, death couldn't kill him and the grave couldn't hold him. So even though the lamb, as he's stepping forward, bears the marks and the scars of being freshly slaughtered, of being freshly offered up, he still stands not bowed low, not unmoving. He stands unconquered. He is the conqueror. He is the overcomer. We serve a lamb today that is still standing. And that is something to praise God for and to give him glory for. Because he didn't just go to the cross. He overcame the cross and overcame death and hell and the grave. And now he stands the only one worthy, the only one who is able, who is qualified to open up this book. You look on the Lamb and you find seven horns talking about the omnipotence of God and the seven eyes, which is His omnipresence, talking about the seven spirits of God as well, are on to this Lamb. And then, and I love this, if you were one of these days, we're going to get to experience. I have to, I have to hold myself back from saying if you were there, because by the grace of God, one of these days we're going to be there and we're going to see this scene play out. But the lamb steps forward 
And he walks over and he grabs the book. Verse number seven. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And look at this. When he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of older odors, which are the prayer of the saints. As the lamb grabs that title deed, remember the only one who can touch that deed is one who is worthy of it and one who is willing to do it. So Jesus not only had to be qualified but he had to be willing. And so he steps forward showing that he's qualified and then he reaches forward showing that he's willing. And here it is. As Jesus grabs, as that lamb grabs that book, that scroll that's there, worship begins to break forth in heaven. Those angels that were quiet, that were crying holy, they bowed themselves. They stopped flying and bowed themselves before who? Before the Lamb of God. And not just that, the four and twenty elders began to bow and to worship him who had been slain. And they sang, the Bible says, verse 9, Revelation, a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? Because thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. So worship breaks forth. And it's, it's a different kind of worship. It's the worship of the redeemed that could only come forth once the Redeemer stepped forward. Once the Redeemer grabbed that book, that scroll, and was willing. Reminds me, if you can't kind of, if you can't kind of grasp the, the, the picture that I'm telling you of his willingness, think of the story of Ruth. And Ruth loved Boaz, but Boaz wasn't the nearest kinsman. There was one other man that was nearer and he had to decide whether or not he was going to marry Ruth because he was the nearest kinsman. He had the right to decide whether or not he wanted to be the one that claimed that prize. He was qualified, but he had to be willing. And if you know that story, you know that that man was not willing He was qualified, but he said, I don't want to redeem. And he passed it on to the next one who was worthy, who was qualified. That was Boaz. So here, what do we have? We have the same story in heaven. You've got legions of people that are up there around the throne. As we're about to find out, it's thousands of thousands of thousands of people that are there. And they're watching the throne. And the angel cries out, is there anyone worthy? And no one moves. Who are they looking for? They're looking for that kinsman redeemer. They're looking for the one who is qualified, but also willing. And as Jesus steps forward, and as he grabs that scroll, what is he saying? I am not only qualified, but I am willing. What happens if Jesus says, I'm not willing? 
You know, there's no Boaz that's stepping in the, in the background waiting to take Jesus' spot. All we have is Jesus. He's the only one qualified. And so if he passes up on this opportunity, we have no hope left. But Jesus grabs that scroll. He's willing to do it. And as he shows his willingness, praise and worship erupt in heaven. And they sing that new song, that song of the people that have been redeemed. Verse number 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders and the number of them. Let's look at this. Was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. I can't quantify that. I can't put that number. I can't imagine looking out over a sea of people that large. But that's how many are in heaven standing around the throne ready to worship the Redeemer. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, unending thousands, sea of people. You're not going to be alone in heaven. You're going to have thousands and thousands and thousands with one heart, one mind, one voice singing glory and praise. Look at this. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I want to be there. You've got to just see it. The angels the, the, the four living ones worship and then the 24 elders worship and then the angels gather with thousands and thousands and thousands of the redeemed and they worship the almighty God, the only one worthy. And then I love this so much. Look what happens next. When Jesus does what only Jesus can do and he redeems Humanity and he redeems the earth by claiming title of the earth. Verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and under the lamb forever and ever. I'm telling you that on that day when Jesus redeems the earth, when Jesus claims title to all that is his and it's rightfully his, the writer of Hebrews says that he is the inheritor. He is the heir of all things. It's rightfully his. When he claims that title deed, not only is everybody in heaven going to be worshiping him, but everyone in earth is going to know that he's Lord and every creature in the world are going to be uttering praises to Almighty God. Is that what my Bible says? Every creature in heaven, the sky, on earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, all of them, he heard them all seeing blessing and honor and glory and power. You say, well, angel, uh, animals can't speak. The prophet heard a donkey talk. So apparently, God, when he wants to, he can open up the voice box of all of creation. And they're all going to sing out blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that is worthy. Amen. 
Every animal singing praise to God. That's what we have to look forward to. Verse 14, And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever. If you want to stand, if the music wants to come. What a day that's going to be. Wow. Wow, that's all I can say. I'm telling you that we're going to be able to look around as we're worshiping God. And you're going to be able to hear dolphins singing praise to Him. Bears in the forest singing praise. You've got the ants that live underground singing praise to Him. They're all going to be singing glory, blessing, and honor unto Jesus. You say, well, that's just too fantastic to imagine. Absolutely, but it's going to happen. And I can't wait for that day. Here's the truth. And we need to get this down in our souls as the music comes. Here's the truth. All of us have a choice that's ours and a choice that's not ours. Here's the first choice. We can worship Jesus as Savior now. And you worship Jesus as Savior now, how do you do that? You say yes to the plan of salvation that He's offered. You get baptized in Jesus' name. You get filled with the Holy Ghost. You live holy under the Lord. That's how you say yes. And that's how you worship Jesus as Savior now. You have that choice. And if you make that choice, you're going to be a part of this number. But here's a choice you don't have. Whether or not you worship Jesus as Lord. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can't stop that day from coming. That day is on its way. And the question is, will it be one of joyfulness or will it be one of absolute overwhelming grief? When all of creation begins to worship Him, are you going to be able to worship Him as Savior and Lord? Or are you going to worship Him as Lord and have regret in your life as you spend eternity away from the One who is worthy? I don't want to be a part of that number. I want to be a part of the number that worships Him now as Lord. And I want to be a part of that ten thousands of thousands of thousands of thousands that worship around His throne and give Him glory and honor. I want to be a part of that number. I wonder if we could just find a place to pray for the next 10 or 15 minutes. And in our own way, I wonder if you could just give God glory and give God honor. I wonder if you could just thank Him for being the Redeemer. He didn't have to. God did not, Jesus did not have to do what He did. He could still be good and still be just and never have went to a cross for you and I. But He did. He chose to redeem us. And because of that, He's worthy and we ought to give Him glory and praise.